Welcome back to the Art and Science of Sound Healing. I'm your host, Thomas Orr Anderson, recording from my cozy mountain cabin studio here in Sewanee, Tennessee, surrounded by beautiful, beautiful, beautiful forest and waterfalls in every direction. I'm really excited about this episode tonight. Uh, For any of you who have been following this show for the last, uh, I guess, 14 episodes, you've probably noticed that I haven't done an episode in quite some time. In fact, the last episode I did was the first episode I had done in quite some time. Um, The last one, I talked a little bit about a book that I wrote um, called The Book That Swallows Itself. And then I kind of disappeared again. Really much to my surprise, I was uh, somewhat drafted by the universe or uh, just suddenly and unexpectedly found myself submerged in this sea of exploration of uh, writing and of putting together um, really important things to me that uh, will actually have impact on this show and what we'll end up talking about in the future. Those things that I've been working on so much, I'm not quite prepared to discuss yet. But as I, uh, after I spent, I don't know, eight or nine weeks just completely working on this expansive project I emerged um, back to, you know, checking my email, thinking about the podcast, all those kind of things. And uh, this topic that we're going to talk about tonight sort of bubbled to the surface of my mind a couple days ago, and uh, I decided to write about it. And for the last two days, I've been busy writing and then editing what is now pretty much in a draft form, but I already put it on my website, phisonics.com. It is an essay, or I call it a note. So it's called Music and Life Toward a Holistic Perspective, a note on the theoretical foundations of sound therapy. So what I am probably going to be doing more and more or writing what I'm calling notes, particularly uh, about this topic, the theoretical foundations of sound therapy. Um, The project I've been working on for those two months where I disappeared, the one thing I do feel prepared to say about it is that really it has been a work toward exploring the theoretical foundations of sound therapy very deeply. It struck me that in physics, for example, uh, as you probably know, I am uh, trained somewhat as a physicist in that I went to college for college and graduate school for 
eight years or 16 full-time semesters studying engineering and physics. And one thing I learned from that, something, you know, really broad and simple, is about the relationship between what's called experimental physics and what is called theoretical physics. So science in general, but very explicitly or most drastically the branch of science that we call physics is in some sense divided into two subcategories, experimental physics and theoretical physics. So you're probably familiar, familiar with that. Experimental physics, you know, you imagine people doing physics experiments like, you know, uh, physics lab at school, but more complicated. Think people are, you know, taking measurements and bouncing particles off of each other and, you know, sending rocket ships up with special experimental apparatus and all that kind of stuff. You know, the basic laboratory picture of the scientist conducting experiments. And then on the other hand, you have people like Einstein, for example, sitting, you picture them sitting somewhere in a room stacked with dusty books and piles of papers everywhere. And they're sitting there at four in the morning and just deep in thought, their hair's messed up. They don't even remember if they've eaten and they're thinking very deeply and often doing mathematics and drawing diagrams and considering the deepest roots of science or of physics, considering really fundamental questions that are not prepared yet for experiments. So before we can conduct a really useful experiment, oftentimes we first must have some sort of theoretical foundation. For example, if you're going to conduct a physics experiment, before you even conceive of an experiment of any sort, you first of all already come to it with this concept of time in space. Anytime we're doing a physics experiment, we already assume that there is such a thing as time and space. And we assume that they have some sort of form or we already have a picture of space-time in some sense. We're trained to think of it, of the world around us, to perceive it, to perceive the world around us in the context of this framework that includes space and time as very fundamental. And we take that for granted. We don't really stop to think about that. But a theoretical physicist actually might think about it quite a bit. And Einstein's actually an excellent example. Einstein figured out or discovered with pencil and paper and his mind, his deeply penetrating mind, discovered that time and space aren't actually straight. They're bent and warped. And he, and with the help of a whole lot of other really smart people, 
created a new vision of space and time that's not straight. It's not straight lines. It's curved and warped and morphed, somewhat like liquid. And from that relativistic space-time that Einstein helped to bring about in our awareness, we come to experiments now in physics with a different framework in which we conceive experiments. And so our experiments change. We think of new kinds of experiments because of the new framework. And so what I've been thinking quite a bit about is the great challenges in this field that we might call sound healing or sound therapy, although those names are uh, not satisfactory to many of the people working in the field. Nevertheless, most people just simply call it sound healing or sound therapy, and we go about our business. But what, I, yeah, what I've realized and thought a great deal about is the fact that this field of sound healing does not have a very good, a very useful or well-understood or broadly distributed framework in which to even conceive of experiments. So when people think of doing some sort of sound healing experiments, they generally think of perhaps collaborating with some sort of laboratory. Maybe let's test if this type of singing bowl, what effect it has on your brain waves, or what effect does it have on someone's hearts, uh, their heart patterns when they are in a gong bath. Something like that. You can picture a sound therapist teaming up with a scientist, and then the scientist, you know, hooks electrodes to the person or measures something happening in their bloodstream or whatever, their brain waves. The scientist does these, you know, sciencey kind of things and takes the measurements while the sound therapist, you know, does their sound therapy thing. Something like that, generally, we picture. Or maybe. There's no sound therapist involved. Maybe the sounds are produced electronically or something like that. Nevertheless, we picture basically integrating or putting uh, sound therapy, experimenting, doing sound therapy experiments in the context of the framework utilized by science. So. Science uses a particular framework, the sort of modern scientific framework, and it's too vast and complex to try to describe in a sentence here. But nevertheless, all the accepted principles of science in every field constitute together something we can call a framework. And of course, that framework's constantly evolving as we discover new things, new principles, new materials, and such. But nevertheless, there's a constantly evolving but pervasive framework of science. And so when people seek to do sound therapy experiments, to do some sort of scientific exploration of sound therapy, they conduct and design, they design and conduct those experiments within the framework of science. As I described, you know, you might team up with a scientist and go to a laboratory and 
do tests on someone's body while they're experiencing sound therapy. So we are studying sound therapy in the framework of science. But there's something very, very important about the framework of science. Essentially, the most fundamental feature of the scientific framework, the most consistent feature, is that the observer or the subject, the subjective experience of anyone involved is discarded or ignored. The way science proceeds is by focusing as intentionally and specifically and direct, directedly upon that which we call objective, the objective physical world. Science is a field of consideration and exploration of that which we call objective. And sound therapy, on the other hand, is a field of human endeavor and experience that involves both the subjective and objective domains of human experience. So we have this, you know, loosely defined field that we call sound therapy, and then we want to study it. We take this field that is a collaboration of the objective and subjective, and then we box it in to an objective framework. And so the greatest, most beautiful, most profound, most dramatic, most, the very best parts of sound therapy continually escape our attempts to explore it experimentally. It doesn't take very long for someone to glance through the few publications, relatively, that study sound therapy to see that something very, very essential is missing from these scientific studies of sound therapy. The very central feature of sound therapy is missing. And that central feature is the self, the person who's experiencing the therapy, or the person who's playing the music. There's an internal subject. There's a subjective world, a subjective realm. The internal experience. That part is absolutely missing from scientific studies because science is precisely a field of endeavor focused on intentionally ignoring the subjective. That's where science gets its great power. And so that was a, not a very quick introduction, but that's an introduction to the topic of today's show. So today's show is called Music and Life Toward a Holistic Perspective.
a note on the theoretical foundations of sound therapy. So, having done that somewhat lengthy introduction, let's uh, get into it. A little background on kind of how this came about. I told you what I'd been doing, or sort of hinted at what I've been doing for the two months leading up to it. But then, uh, as many of you know, I have, or I administer a Facebook group with the same name as this podcast. It's called The Art and Science of Sound Healing. It's a discussion group. Uh, hopefully, <clears throat> hopefully all the listeners have checked it out. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty awesome place. There's actually, now I think, I think there's a, a, f- a little over 500 people in the group and it's growing very rapidly, you know, maybe 20 people a week or something like that. And it has attracted a whole lot of experts from all around the world. So it's a really great place to ask questions. There's uh, people that know quite a bit about sound therapy from a lot of different directions. Some really, really knowledgeable people there. So I highly recommend it. And really nice people too. So it's a great place to to learn, to ask questions, to share things, to have discussions. But there was uh, a few days ago, I made a suggestion uh, regarding life force energy or chi. Basically, I'd been thinking uh, for actually years now about uh, what actually for the my entire adult life has been largely devoted to chi or ki or life force energy or bio energy. Um, in fact, that's what convinced me to go back to school and study physics really was realizing that uh, an understanding or some sort of scientific, uh, some way to, to bring chi or life force energy and science bring them somewhat together and so anyway in my long-term explorations of that i have come to believe uh, pretty strongly that what we call life force energy or what we what we call chi is not in fact energy per se Uh, in in physics the word energy has a very specific meaning. Essentially, the amount of energy in some system is equal to the its force times distance. So the ability to move or to to how to apply a force over some distance. So, you know, if you're talking about the amount of energy in some substance, and it's sort of heat energy you can produce by burning it, it would be measured or quantified in terms of how much of a force it could cause, that explosion or the burning of the substance. How big of a force over applied over some distance. So basically, in physics, energy is the ability to move stuff, to move mass, Um, and when we look at chi or life force energy, 
I have not seen personally or in my research or in other people's research uh, any really strong reason to believe that the ability to apply a force over a distance or in other words, the ability to push mass, that it doesn't seem that that's a really fundamental feature of what we call chi or life force energy. And thus, uh, there's not a very clear reason to call it energy other than tradition. Um, you know, chi was, I don't know how long ago, it was, you know, translated into English as life force energy, and that's caught on. But energy might actually not be a correct term. And of course, you know, uh, considerations of nomenclature and terminology are kind of, you know, they seem irrelevant in some sense. You know, what matters, I can call it energy, do whatever I want, so long as my practice is effective. Whether I'm practicing with energy in myself or I'm working with energy or chi in with someone else or however, whether it's a therapeutic application to some with another person or, you know, a qigong practice or prana breathing, pranayama yoga practice, whatever it is, you can just say, hey, I'll just call it energy. That's fine. It doesn't matter because it works. You know, I'm getting healthier. These people are getting healthier. All sorts of positive things are happening as, as well as I utilize this concept of energy. So it's like, what does it matter? Why can't we call it energy? What's the problem with that? So maybe there actually is a problem with it. And the problem is not being, you know, caught up on what words we use, but the trouble comes with the fact that with any words that we use, we also have certain conceptions inside our minds that are interwoven with those words. So when we say fluid, for example, when you say the word fluid, you have some sort of images. We all have these kind of images, these sense, internal senses. Some people can kind of feel it. Some people really visualize things. There's all sorts of different ways that our internal conceptions operate. But nevertheless, with any word with which we're very familiar, like fluid, we have this internal sort of visceral picture of it, this internal concept of fluidity that we apply in our perceptions. So if someone, for example, points up at a flock of birds and you had never looked at it that way before and they point out its fluidity, look how the flock of birds is moving like a fluid, then you connect it, you connect that word with your internal experiences of fluidity, all the past experiences that you associate with fluidity, and it colors, in a sense, our perception. 
And then you can start to see the flock of birds moving somewhat like the other things that you have called fluid. So likewise with the term energy, we all have a variety of experiences that we associate with the word energy. Um, When we're talking about, say, for example, people doing energy work like Reiki or some sort of Qigong or even people that uh, deem themselves to be doing energy work when they're, uh, you know, playing didgeridoo on people or singing bowls or gongs. When we call it energy, then we picture in some sense or we conceive of this experience called chi or life force energy. We conceive of it as some in the context of other things that we call energy. So our whole lives we've gone about experiencing lots of different things that we associate with the word energy. And so that uh, sum total of our conception of energy colors our perception of what we're doing. And what if it turns out that it is not actually energy and that our conceiving of it that way is actually preventing some sort of progress in understanding it and integrating it more fully into our view of the universe. So if it's not energy, if it indeed literally is not energy in essence, then that would be important to us um, in this field. And what I realized is that there is there are very few people in the field of sound therapy or sound healing who are really digging in to these kind of questions, um, this theoretical research. In physics, of course, as I mentioned earlier, there are theoretical physicists who work on these kind of questions in physics, but there are very few people working devotedly on these kind of questions for sound therapy. So what I did, uh, what I did on, the pod, on the Facebook page is I brought up the question of perhaps qi or chi or life force energy, perhaps it's not actually energy. What if, for example, it is harmony? So over the course of, you know, the many years that I've been considering this topic, uh, one thing that has sort of stood out in my considerations is that when we're looking at life itself, when we're looking at a living thing, say, you know, somebody's alive right here, right now, and then a moment later, they're not alive. What is it that changed? What is it that's different now, fundamentally? And one way of looking at it is, uh, you could imagine, say for example, every part, or imagine a symphony orchestra. So 
you know, there's a whole bunch of musicians and they're all playing together. They're all cooperating. They're all doing different things, different rhythmic processes with their different instruments, with different frequencies and different patterns coming out. And they're all doing sort of different rhythmic stuff, but all of it fits together. It's all coordinated. It's all harmonized. It's all cooperating. And then imagine that suddenly they all quit playing together. Say, for example, imagine if they were only hearing themselves through headphones and then the headphones were cut out. So all of a sudden, none of them could hear the others. They would very quickly, their processes, what they're playing would get out of sync. It would no, they would no longer be playing together, even though for a, you know, a few seconds before they realized what was happening, they might keep playing, but not together. And it'll sort of, the thing that fizzles out is the coordination between them. So suppose they keep playing and keep playing, all of them. So there's this, the, even once they can't hear each other, then there is still the same amount of energy, the same sort of things happening, the same players, the same ingredients, but there's something missing that those ingredients are no longer coordinated with each other. And so in that sense, consider a living being, uh, you know, an organism, and then consider when it dies. You can look at each part of us, our cells, our organs, uh, glands, you know, whatever sort of uh, chunks you want to conceptually divide the human into. You can divide us into these parts, these sort of players, and each of them is constantly engaged in some sort of rhythmic processes and those rhythmic processes are coordinated with all the other players with all the other parts of the body in some way our brain is coordinated with our heart and our heart is coordinated with our liver and so forth these different rhythmic processes that are all very different than each other generally they are nevertheless coordinated they're rhythmic processes, the, the frequencies and amplitudes and however you want to sort of conceive and map the rhythmic processes of all the organs or all the parts of the body. They're all working together. And then when you die, right, right when you die, what happens? Like right at that moment, all the parts in general, are all still there. They're all still warm, and you know they're all still. If you you know measure things about them, most of them are still you know active, and they're all still pretty much in the same place. But they are no longer cooperating with each other. They're no longer coordinated. So there's the same amount of energy at least in the physicists' meaning of energy or the scientists' meaning of energy. Of energy. There's a st still the same parts, the same energy, the same mass, but something is missing. And that something that is missing 
is the coordination of what they're doing. And when you consider rhythmic processes, the coordination of rhythmic processes in the context of music, we call that harmony. And harmony is even uh, you know, applied to uh, architecture, the coordination of geometric patterns. So any whole system of subsystems where the subsystems are engaged in rhythmic pat or are rhythmic patterns or are operating in rhythmic patterns, when they are coordinated together in some sort of sense, which is really hard to define, but when they are coordinated in some special way, we call that harmony. And so on the Facebook group, I suggested that uh, I asked the question of whether or whether uh, are there any circumstances where we're uh, conceive there to be life force energy where we could not perhaps better conceive of it as harmony. And much to my surprise, I thought this would be a very uh, welcome and delightful concept among people interested in sound therapy. But much to my surprise, it was, uh, there was a significant amount of resistance to the idea the idea of not calling it energy, and even worse, calling it harmony, potentially, that idea was uh, very unsavory to a, a great number of people. And so that led to a variety of conversations. And those conversations, what they did is they pushed me to really dig a little deeper uh, about this very thing. This is something I've been thinking about and working on for, for many years, like I said, but only through the resistance of trying to uh, communicate it to people, uh, it led me to realize I, I wasn't communicating it well enough. I was, ass I was assuming a sort of background or a frame of reference uh, that wasn't shared. Basically, I've been thinking about this for so long, and I, you know, went to college for eight years studying energy. And so I have this sort of background where I've been thinking about it for so long that I am not, uh, it wasn't clear to me that I had such a different perspective where. Uh, sort of ass assumptions that I thought were shared were not necessarily shared. So that led me to really hone a bit better what it is that I'm trying to talk about here because it's a very subtle topic. And so I sat down to write a paragraph or so uh, to you know explain myself a little bit better because I was being misunderstood People weren't really, the people that were disagreeing with me weren't actually disagreeing with what I meant, which proved to me that I wasn't uh, expressing myself clearly enough. So if someone's going to disagree with me, it's important that they're actually disagreeing with what I actually mean. Otherwise, we're not, it's not clear if we agree or disagree because uh, they're disagreeing with some other thing. 
So I realized it was a case where I need to clarify what I'm talking about here because it's a very, very, very deep and very subtle subject. And it requires very delicate movements in our thoughts. Very, very delicate movements. We have to be very careful and attentive to every subtlety of what we're talking about and make sure that there's a shared understanding of each feature. And then with a shared understanding, then the thing I'm trying to express has that context. Basically, the context is necessary in order to communicate this thing that I'm attempting to communicate. And to be clear, I am not here presenting some big idea like, I figured out something really great and now you're lucky enough to be listening to this show and find out what it is. Rather, it's a sort of path of thought, a path of consideration that is very much suggestive And what I'm doing is not giving an answer or any such thing. Rather, I'm introducing a path of consideration, introducing a topic, essentially, uh, introducing all the concepts or the basic points necessary in order to proceed to explore the topic. And so we are going to go through on this episode, uh, at least in short form, the content of what I intended to be a paragraph when I sat down to write. And then 48 hours later is a 20-page paper. So it's called Music and Life. Really quickly going to take a quick break to have a word from our sponsor. Our sponsor today is... Phi Sonics Academy. <laughs> so I, Phi Sonics, my company that makes sound immersion systems, also has a sort of a branch, a sister branch called Phi Sonics Academy, and I teach courses primarily online. Uh, so remotely. You can have one-on-one conversations with me, and I have a number of courses already prepared that are getting really excellent reviews. And generally, the courses are seven hours divided into three sections, and we do it through Skype or Google Hangouts or FaceTime, and we see each other face-to-face, and we look at all kinds of animations and diagrams, and go really deep into our topics. The first course is called Sound Therapy Foundations 1, The Science in the Art. It is a course where you will finish that class with a very good and clear foundation in the physics of sound and vibration and then how the physics of sound and vibration operates in the realm of musical instruments and sounds. We do a lot of 
analysis, spectral and frequency analysis. And then we connect all of that, the physics of sound and how it operates in the realm of musical instruments and experience. We connect that with your personal practice and goals. It's a fantastic class. And I have some other classes on there too. It's Phi Sonics Academy at phisonics.com. P-H-I-S-O-N-I-C-S dot com. I hope to see you soon. The classes are really, really fun every time. To get into this, I guess the first thing I'll do since it's short, I will read the abstract of this note. The abstract goes, This informal note addresses some fundamental relationships between that which we call music and that which we call life. Certain similarities are addressed, as are the inherent limitations in the definition of these terms. As music coherently bridges the objective and subjective domains of human experience, it is suggested that we investigate music as a primary resource toward a better understanding of life itself. So basically what I'm suggesting in this note is that because music coherently bridges these two domains of human experience, the objective and subjective, that we investigate music as a resource to better understand life itself. So what does that mean? I guess the best way to tell you what I mean by that is to continue with the topic. Essentially, that's what this is all about, is explaining what that means. So first of all, what is life? Um, the great mystery in science, the greatest mystery thus far, there's kind of one central mystery that has different sort of sides of it. And one side of it is the question of what is life? Not in a philosophical sense, you know, like the meaning of life, but more in a somewhat of a biological sense. What makes a living thing living? What makes it alive? Nobody yet really has a good answer to this. If you go, you know, in eighth or ninth grade, you take a biology class, you'll get to, you know, some section, maybe it's in the first chapter or two, where they define life. And generally that definition will be some list of features. Something that is alive has these following features. And generally, you know, it includes reproduction and, you know, three or four or five, six other features that are deemed to be the qualities that if you see something that has all those qualities, it's called alive. And, you know, you're supposed to memorize those and, and answer correctly when you get to the test. But nevertheless, most of us are left somewhat dissatisfied. So if you ask the teacher, you know, do scientists know what life is? The teacher might say, of course we do. Here's the answer and the point to that paragraph. But if you 
talk to most people um, and particularly talk to biologists, the it's generally admitted that in fact this is still a great mystery. We don't even know what we mean when we say something's alive exactly. It's like somehow really slippery. It seems like it's right there in front of us. Like, okay, there's you know a living plant and there's a dead plant. Here's a living person, here's a dead person. Here's a an organism, you know, reproduces and has families and DNA and here's a not organism, you know, a block of gold or, you know, uh, a dust particle floating in space. That's not alive. And this aloe vera plant is definitely alive. We feel like we really know what we mean by it, but then when we try to define it precisely, it just runs away from us. When we chase it, it runs away from us. And so, and I've been looking at why is that? What is the reason for that? Why, when we attempt to define life scientifically, why are we not able to do so thus far in a satisfactory way? One really good example is a rainbow. Most of us have been blessed enough to get to witness this beautiful, beautiful thing that we call a rainbow. And let's just imagine we're out in a field and, you know, there was a nice rain and the sun's popping through the clouds and there on the, there across the fields and mountains in front of us, we see a beautiful, beautiful arc of colors, this, you know, part of a circle kind of stretching from one part of the horizon or near the horizon to the, another, from one mountain top to another, or maybe it's from the roof of one house to another. We see this beautiful thing and we call it a rainbow. And then we look and we say, uh, you know, there, there it is. It's right there. I see it. Uh, you can see the end of it going right into the top of your friend's house, perhaps. And someone could ask, where is the rainbow? And you can look at it and you can point and see, you know, there it is. Uh, and then, of course, there's the classic case of someone trying to find the end of the rainbow. So go chase that rainbow, run across the distance or get on a bicycle or a horse and go toward the rainbow. And what we know happens is that the rainbow runs away from you. It moves just as much as we chase it, it moves away. We can never quite get to it, except in those interesting circumstances where water splashes up or something, and then you find out the great secret that indeed you are the ends of the rainbow. It actually curves around and touches your feet. But let's just think of it in the you know normal situation where it's running from you and there's not enough mist in the air to continue it around. So we chase the rainbow and it continually retreats from us. And eventually, if we chase it long enough, it just disappears. And so if you ask a really simple question about a rainbow, you ask, where is a rainbow? It sounds like such a simple question. <clears throat> but 
it doesn't have a simple answer because the rainbow isn't, we see it when we're looking at it, we see it in a particular location and that location moves as we move, but it's not really there, right? And then someone else is looking at the rainbow from a different location and they might see the rainbow also. You can say, hey, look at the rainbow. And your friends sees it and goes, oh, wow, so beautiful. They see the rainbow too. But if you stepped over to where they are, the rainbow they see is actually a different rainbow. So someone will confirm, oh, yes, indeed, there is a rainbow. So we both see it and we can both confirm it. But if we're standing in different places, it will see it actually in a different place. So it's uh, such a simple question, where is a rainbow? But it has no simple answer. So that might suggest that it's actually not a good question. So let's ask another question. Instead of asking where is a rainbow, let's ask what is a rainbow? So you know, modern optical physics and electromagnetic theory have done a really good job of describing the precise details of the conditions in which rainbows occur. We can describe all the angles of light travel relative to the sun, the suspended atmospheric water droplets, the air, the observer's eyes. We can describe how all these conditions relate to each other and to the principles of physical optics that all act together and lead to a rainbow spectrum pattern being cast on our eyeball. And then biologists are getting pretty good at describing how those patterns of light on our eyeball are translated into electrical impulses in our brain. We have all this detail. We can describe all these processes that occur that all synchronize in some way to produce the experience that we call seeing a rainbow. But does that answer our question? What is a rainbow? So if a little kid, it's a pretty likely question, it's a childish sort of question, what is a rainbow? If a child asks that question and you answer with all that physics stuff, the child will, will they be uh, satisfied? Will they think they have the answer? Maybe some, you know, uh, disturbingly nerdy child, it could have been me, might be satisfied and they might go around being like, you know, I'm special because I know what a rainbow is. All these other dummies don't know, but I know, you know, about all this science stuff and I'm very special. But does that person really know what a rainbow is? Or can they just describe all the conditions that are necessary to produce a rainbow? That's a really fundamental question that we come to in all considerations of science. When we have these, uh, these very detailed descriptions of how to produce something, how to make it happen, does that mean we really know what it is? Does any scientist really know what an electron is? We can describe all kinds of features of electrons, but does that answer our question, what is an electron? 
And likewise, does all this, you know, description of the angles and the light and whatnot, does that answer what a rainbow really is? So there's kind of two different complementary ways of looking at this. Uh, a mainstream scientist is really likely to, you know, say, yes, indeed, that is what a rainbow is. We've answered the question adequately. But a child, as I mentioned, is pretty unlikely to be satisfied. But And it's not just a child who is unsatisfied. In fact, I suspect most of us are not entirely satisfied by that answer. There's something sort of missing. And what is that thing that's missing? There's a piece of the puzzle in even the puzzle presented by the scientist. There's a piece of the puzzle missing. And that piece of the puzzle is us, the observer, the one who is seeing the rainbow. That whole description of the rainbow left out what, what this observer is. Who is this self seeing the rainbow? What is their experience? And that is precisely the domain that science intentionally ignores. Science has proceeded for the last, you know, throughout human history and grown and evolved and very powerful and very useful. But this power is based fundamentally upon ignoring the observer, ignoring that realm, that domain of human experience that we call subjective. And so one way of looking at why that answer to what a rainbow is, why it's unsatisfying is because it leaves out the very self that is observing, which is a big part of, you know, what a rainbow is. Because a rainbow, in a sense, isn't there when nobody's seeing it. The next section of this note is called Observer Independence, Science from Magic. Our question is, what makes science so very potent and far-reaching? And a good way to answer this question is by considering the historic divergence of science from magic. In ancient times, that which we now call magic was not at all separate from that which we now call science. As ancient humans devised ever new ways to understand and work effectively in their environment, their inquiries inevitably evolved into systems. Once a field of inquiry has been systematized, it can then be communicated. Thus, alongside the evolution of humanity, likewise countless knowledge systems have blossomed, mixed, and reproduced. And in more ancient times, such systems were generally holistic. Holistic in that they included all realms of human concern, a total cultural framework. Ancient knowledge systems were not generally relegated to specific, well-defined domains. Rather, 
They included every aspect of the human experience, including both our internal or private experiences and our external or shared experiences. This unity was not permanent, however. Over the course of time, certain thought systems have consistently demonstrated themselves to be more reliable than others and in ever more well-defined domains. Particularly, a certain subset of thought systems continually demonstrated itself to be uniquely useful for making accurate predictions about our environment, as well as for constructing useful tools of all sorts. This set of systems is what we now call science. So pardon my taking, uh, taking a break from freestyling this show and reading directly from the paper, but uh, I believe that that was more efficiently stated than I might have stated off the top of my head. But basically, the magic that became clearly, that clearly demonstrated itself to be the most reliable is that magic that we now call science. And that magic, which we now call magic, is the leftovers, the parts that weren't particularly reliable. So how did science find those parts of human endeavors those features of the universe that are the most reliable. The way this was done, what, what we found out is the parts that were, the things that were the most reliable were those things that do not depend on the observer. So for example, if I throw a rock in this direction at this speed, and then you throw that rock in this direction or at that same velocity and what will happen is the rock will land in the same place so long as we throw it with the same direction the same rock in the same direction with the same velocity so if I drop a ball from you know a building and then you drop a ball from that building we're gonna have the same results if we drop the same ball from the same building and so on and so on there's these certain aspects of the universe around us that don't depend on the internal subjective state they don't depend on the observer there are certain things we can do that are gonna have the same result no matter who does them if I press this button on this machine it does XYZ. If you press that same button on the same machine, it also does XYZ. Everywhere that we can find that feature of independence from, from an observer, we find really reliable things. And our science is precisely that field of all of those very reliable things that are reliable precisely because they exclude the observer. Let's give an example, a counterexample. Imagine something, 
Imagine if I really like ice cream. You can say ice cream and my mouth will water, right? Because I get excited. I, I love ice cream as long as it's the really good stuff. The, you know, some good organic, natural style ice cream. But if there's someone else that despises ice cream, they can't stand it. If you say ice cream and they hear you, they get, you know, nauseated and maybe leave the room. So basically, if someone says ice cream, if that's their experiment uh, to see what people do when you say ice cream, it's not very reliable because it'll depend what each person will do will depend the reaction will depend on uh, all sorts of things all their past experiences their memories their tastes um, it's not a reliable thing and so that's not science science avoids that kind of thing of course psychology tries to dig into it but nevertheless even psychology is always dealing with what a person says, their facial expressions, these external things. It never gets to the actual internal. We cannot see the observer. We see the observed. And so science is that field of inquiry that has, uh, it's, it's all the most reliable things we can find in nature. And it turns out those really reliable features have in common with them that they exclude the observer and they focus on what we call the objective realm and ignore the subjective realm. And so basically, in summary of that section, science and magic diverged historically. And they diverged by science being that magic that is the most reliable. And then what, whatever was left over, we have roughly summed into what we call magic. But there's a catch. And this catch really popped up about, you know, give or take a hundred years ago. And it is essentially this. Everything I just said about science being a completely focused on the objective and leaving out the subjective and ignoring the observer and being very different than magic it turns out that's essentially antiquated and has been disproved with a thoroughness beyond compare. Um, uh, around 100 years ago, quantum mechanics, a field of science called quantum mechanics, and a field called relativity appeared. And there was this group of extraordinary geniuses around the world during this period of time that uh, all worked together in some fashion and created these really revolutionary theories of physics that are 
so far-reaching and so mind-blowing that they actually have not yet been digested by our modern science. And the, the thing that is potentially the most disturbing and revolutionary about quantum mechanics and relativity is that in this field of science, this field we call science, that has this incredible power gained by ignoring the observer, all of a sudden, really quite suddenly, quantum mechanics and relativity both showed in two totally different ways that the observer is inextricably there in everything and in our science that we cannot ignore the observer. For example, in quantum mechanics, the you when you're making certain types of measurements of some thing, if you if you set your measurement up one way, the thing is a particle and has a specific location and a velocity. A, like a kind of like a little ball flying and it flies through one hole or another. But if we set up our experiment a different way, it's a wave and it doesn't have any particular location. It's blurred out. A wave and a particle are totally opposite things. A particle is something in some particular place. A wave is this mushy distributed pattern. How can something be a particle and a wave? But it turns out, and this is what is so revolutionary about quantum mechanics, is that at the smallest levels, at these tiny, tiny levels, inconceivably small, that things are both waves and particles, or neither, at the same time, and which we will see, which we will observe, whether we observe a particle or a wave, is determined by how we observe it. So all of a sudden, the observer is actually determining the very outcomes of our experiments. Uh-oh. <laughs> That's a really big mess. And it has been bothering scientists behind the scenes for a hundred years. And then Einstein's theory of relativity brings the observer in to our considerations in a totally different sense. What relativity shows us is that time and space, the very framework in which we conceive nature to be occurring, that even time and space are dependent upon the observer. If I have, if, if two, if I see two things happening at the same time, two fireworks going off at the same time, you might see one of them happening before the other or reversed. There's no such thing as actually two events being synchronized. There's no such thing as the same time. What we, the time that each of us measures, depends on 
our own frame of reference, how fast it's moving, how quickly it's accelerating. Each observer's frame of reference determines their own time and their own space, their own shape of time and space. Time and space are warped and morphed and somewhat melted fluidly and bent depending upon, and that that melting or that fluid uh, morphing of space and time are dependent precisely on the observer and the observer's relative motion to the thing being observed. So quantum mechanics and relativity both very dramatically brought the observer into a fundamental position in science so that we can no longer ignore the observer. And But that's really, really a tricky situation if you think about it. So we have this field of human inquiry and activity we call science. And science is based upon ignoring the observer. And then the most powerful, far-reaching theories that blossomed from science or within science are based entirely on the observer. So we have this field based on ignoring the observer, this field called science. And science essentially proves that you can't ignore the observer. So it's like the rug being pulled out from under science. And that has had a really uh, shaky effect upon the the foundations of science and it's a question that you know has not been uh, figured out yet how do we genuinely integrate these features into our actual framework of how we do science so the observer in uh, the presence of the observer in, in quantum mechanics and relativity are acknowledged, but not, but that acknowledgement has not bled into how we see, how we conceive the universe. So that, that sounds, you know, that's kind of a wishy-washy sounding statement. So instead of trying to clarify that uh, at this point, Let's just move on and perhaps what will reach further will clarify it. The next section of this paper is called Life Itself, The Dirty Secret of Science. Um, Basically, I'm just going to read a little bit. As potent and far-reaching as it surely is, science has nevertheless made little progress toward understanding that thing called life. Of course, we have described living systems in unfathomably minute detail, using ever more advanced and penetrating instruments. We've mapped the human genome and scanned our brains. We now have incredibly detailed descriptions of organismic biochemical processes and circulatory patterns. 
yet it still remains unclear as to exactly what constitutes one thing as living now and not living at some later time. Why is this? Why does life itself ever slip away from us just as quickly as we grasp? Why does life recede from us like a rainbow's end? Here, I propose that life recedes from scientific inquiry for precisely the same reason that the rainbow retreats. That reason being observer dependence. So the next section is called Science Demoted to Engineering. So how, how do we move on from here? We have this incredibly powerful field of human activity called science that's based upon essentially ignoring the subjective, and that's what makes it so reliable. And then it's produced these incredible uh, theories, the theory of relativity and quantum mechanics, that are the most reliable theories we've ever found. And those theories themselves are based upon including the observer in our considerations. So what are we to do here now that we are forced to acknowledge the observer as fundamental to our considerations? What, what can we do? One thing we could do is proceed in a pragmatic way, and this is the most standard approach. We can just simply say science works. Essentially, we can reduce science to engineering and remove from our conception of science any idea that it leads us to understanding in the childish sense, just you know, understanding what a rainbow is or that internal subjective state of feeling like we understand something. Rather, we can treat science as, you know, essentially a set of really powerful tools, not to help us understand the world, but to create ever more relevant models and more powerful tools and more accurate instruments and make better predictions. We can map the structures of things in greater detail and uncover more general laws and principles that govern the interactions of every conceivable thing. Essentially, we can just acknowledge that science is simply engineering and is not suitable for understanding. Although this approach is popular, it may not be as reasonable as it sounds. These powerful tools that we call science, from whence did they come? Where did we get these laws and principles that form the very foundations of science? We get these principles from the minds of deep and contemplative thinkers. There have always been a few among us who continually look past the concerns of immediate application and toward what seems to be some essential core, some essential subjective understanding. These thinkers ask new questions or approach old questions in new ways. And it is from such non-engineering inquiry that our most powerful engineering principles arose. Essentially, we cannot get rid of the part of science 
that is focused on understanding. We can't get rid of it and just let science be engineering because the science itself literally arises from the minds of people who are trying to understand it. Where did Euclid's geometry come from? Where did Newton's mechanics? Where did Einstein's relativity come from? Where did Schrodinger's wave equation of quantum mechanics come from? It came from people, humans, that were contemplating the universe, trying to understand it better. They weren't just doing engineering. All the engineers in the world use these principles that weren't created through engineering. They were created through deeply penetrating thought, through the internal subjective search for a feeling of understanding from deep devoted thinkers. And so we cannot just relegate science to engineering, to, in, to uh, just applications for today, because that's like taking the roots away from a tree. There will no longer be a tree. So much like the writing of this paper, I've realized that the talking about it is longer than I expected. I expected on this episode to essentially summarize it and uh, briefly summarize the topic and then leave it to the interested reader to take the time to read the 20-page paper. Um, But it turns out that much like writing it, there's no real, really easy way to efficiently uh, squish it down, to compress it. So uh, what I'm saying here is that I am going to take a break and let you take a break and continue this on the next episode. So just really quickly to summarize what we've talked about so far is we talked about, you know, the question of what is life and about how that question continually escapes science. And then we talked about the analogy of a rainbow, how a rainbow is a very real thing that we really sense, we really see it, we really see it have a location. But when we try to find it, we can't really find it. It's not really there. It slips away from us. And the reason it slips away from us is because it's an essentially observer-dependent phenomenon. The rainbow isn't really out there. It's a whole bunch of processes that include uh, an observer. And where you see a rainbow depends on the observer. Also talked about how science... Uh, diverged from magic historically and how that occurred through essentially uh, focusing upon the most reliable phenomena, the most predictable phenomena, which just so happen to be those phenomena that are independent of the observer. So science grew into this field of inquiry that intentionally ignores the observer ignores uh, 
that which we call subjective and focuses as perfectly as possible upon what we call objective. And so thus, science and magic diverged. And then quantum mechanics and relativity come along and introduce observer dependence at the most fundamental level. And so this field of science based on ignoring the observer suddenly has to admit that the observer is fundamental to everything. And then talk just a little bit about how life itself, that science doesn't have a good grasp of life itself. And maybe that is for, well, not maybe, that is for the same reason, because observer dependence is fundamental to life itself. And so life exists in the blind spot of science. And then discussed, you know, one answer to this is to simply demote science to engineering, to only consider science for, you know, direct applications, essentially just engineering. But the problem with that is that the engineering principles themselves, this really objective framework that we might call engineering that some people want to squeeze science into those very principles that make it work are based upon the subjective internal experiences of deep thinkers that are trying to understand the world not just do engineering and so that's where we've gotten so far starting on the next episode we'll go into the next section which is called Return of the Observer. Thank you for joining me on this episode of The Art and Science of Sound Healing. Once again, I'm your host, Thomas Orr Anderson, and be well, be blessed. This episode of The Art and Science of Sound Healing is brought to you by Phisonics Academy, where you can have your own one-on-one course remotely with yours truly, Thomas or Anderson, in various topics related to the field of sound healing or sound therapy. And you can find information about Phisonics Academy on phisonics.com, P-H-I-S-O-N-I-C-S.com. Once again, be blessed and be well. Thank you.